Thanks for flying with us. Jordan here. Just wanted to let everyone know what's happening here at the Star Lords podcast. Star Lords is now on Discord. If you would like to join the Star Lords Cantina Discord server, you can find a link in the description or on any of our social media accounts. Reach out with a DM or email. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching the Star Lores Podcast. Go ahead and give our page a like and send us a message. You can also email at starlorespodcast at gmail.com. Send us your fan art, Star Wars collections, or fan fictions, and you may even get a feature on one of our pages or even the show. Don't be afraid to offer corrections or add to any of the topics that we discuss on the show. We are also on Patreon, so if you want to help us pay the bills, as well as get a few awesome perks like bonus episodes, access to the private Facebook group, or the VIP section of the Discord server, head on over to patreon.com forward slash starlores and sign up for as little as one US dollar a month. And finally, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher app or YouTube, as well as sending us a five-star review on iTunes. This really helps us reach a wider audience. Enjoy the rest of the show. You are listening to the Star Lores Podcast. Beloved Queen of the Stars. Zender told me he once journeyed to a dead world where the Force was worshipped as the triad of divine beings. The daughter was the light side, the son was the dark side, and the father? The father was the Force itself, perhaps? Quote Arden Lin, referring to Zender's description of the Ones. the many groups aligned with the dark side of the Force, the Order of the Sith Lords and the Brotherhood of Darkness are the most well-documented. But they were far from the only sect to wield this corrupting power. Some dark side groups were merely splinter factions from the mainline Sith, tracing their intellectual and philosophical positions back to those codified by the likes of Sorza's Zinn and the other Dark Jedi exiles. Other groups predated the Sith, or independently developed their own traditions and techniques relating to the infamous Dark Side. These are their legends. While it is all but certain that the Celestials were sophisticated users of the Force, whether they drew on its light or dark aspect is ambiguous. There does seem to be a tendency for dark siders to participate in morally repugnant economic practices like slavery, though the degree and nature of servitude by other beings to the Celestials is unclear. 
they did exercise some control over various species in the galaxy. One of the reasons so little is known of the Celestials is that they evidently went extinct, notably when other species began to master space travel. There were three beings that may have been the last surviving Celestials, living until about 21 BBY, outliving their kin by tens of thousands of years. The Ones, as the Thirut Killikhive would come to know them, were born sometime around 1 million BBY. They were enormously strong in the Force, and their power reached deific levels. It is no surprise that they occupied the roles of gods in the Thirut's psycho-historic tradition. The father used his power to attempt to balance the constant conflict between his children, the son and the daughter. At some point, they relocated to a lush world in the Ma Cluster, where they lived in relative peace for a time. This world contained a nexus of both the dark and light sides of the Force, and hoping to prevent his children from gaining these dangerous powers, the father forbade his children from visiting them. The son, known alternatively as the fanged god in mythology, gained his power by drinking from the font of power. The pool of lo water located in a dank grotto was a nexus of the dark side. The sun's notable force abilities included purple arcs of force lightning capable of carving canyons into planetary crusts, shape-shifting into a gargoyle at will, and generally attempting to deceive or snuff out the light side, personified by his sister. The sun was quick to anger, deceptive, and in some ways a slave to his passions. He was the living personification of the dark side, in contrast to the daughter, avatar of the light. The very nature of the force may have been reflected in and controlled by the one's family dynamics. Around 100,000 BBY, the father employed the services of a mortal being of an unknown species to help soothe the conflict between his progeny. This woman became known as the mother. She provided emotional support and guidance to the father's children, and for a time, their relationship improved. The ones entered a period of domestic bliss. Eventually, the mother saw that her inevitable death would mean a return to the violent status quo of her children's relationship. When she reached an advanced age, and believed herself to be near death, she violated the father's proscriptions against visiting the pool of knowledge and the font of power. Not being a celestial, however, the nexuses had a different effect on the mother than on her children. She was twisted and corrupted by the massive power infused into her mortal body, and she could do nothing to resist the corruption of the dark side. Like the ones, her physical form became malleable to her whims. 
In her typical humanoid form, her mouth expanded to a horrible rictus grin, literally stretching from ear to ear, filled with sharp, angular teeth. Like the ones, her physical form was plastic and could be changed at will. The mother changed her name, which is most frequently recorded as Avaloth. Other epithets for the transformed mother included Beloved Queen of the Stars and Bringer of Chaos. Unlike many feared despots and tyrants aligned with the dark side, Abeloth was self-taught. She did not learn her sinister ways from ancient texts and wizened old masters, as none existed. And for eons, she was imprisoned and isolated from the galactic community by her family, who then relocated to Mortis. If he wanted to keep his children from fighting and spreading chaos across the galaxy, the father could have chosen a better residence. The well of the dark side was located there. Unsurprisingly, it was at the bottom of this universal drain for the dark side where the sun made his home, no doubt growing in power and hatred over the eons. After imprisoning Abeloth, the Ones conscripted the Thirut to build Centerpoint Station to help keep her there. Alone with her rage and negativity, Abeloth's power became comparable to the Ones. The planet's very ecosystem bent to her will. Although Abeloth was kept from unleashing her chaos for a time by the Ones, she would escape after the son killed his sister and father. Anakin Skywalker was instrumental in the son's filicide. Grandmaster Luke Skywalker of the New Jedi Order, writing decades after these events, believed that the five galactic wars he lived through were due to the imbalance created by this million-year family feud. Eater of Worlds Beware, Jedi Master, lest through carelessness and inattention you let loose on the galaxy a monster. Bodo Bass The Qua visited Lehan and made first contact with that planet's native sentient species, the Rakata, in the distant past. They brought technology and knowledge of the Force, giving it freely to the Rakata. While the blue-skinned Saurian Qua may have instructed the Rakata on the importance of balance in using the Force, the Rakatans in general were not prepared to learn this lesson. To the eternal shame and horror of the Qua, 
their pupils indulged exclusively in the dark side and appropriated qua spacefaring technology to found their own empire. The rapacious infinite empire developed technology that harvested the power of the force in order to fuel unstable hyperdrives in an unending conquest of the galaxy. In particular, the power generated by suffering was a premium form of energy in this foul marriage of industry and spirituality. To generate greater amounts of power, Rakatans tortured live subjects. Apart from requiring the sadistically generated negative emotions as a resource, many Rakatans also enjoyed the process on a hedonistic level, delighted in the pain of their victims. In ancient times, all Rakata were thought to be Force-sensitive, but like the Sith, they seemed to be predisposed to using its darker aspect. Long-term use of the dark side eventually altered their biology permanently, increasing the intensity of psychological traits like hatred, quarrelsomeness, and cruelty, making them as natural to Rakata as cooperation in primates. In 35,000 BBY, the Rakatans went to war against the Celestials with the express purpose of exterminating the uncontested masters of the galaxy. This campaign was largely successful. The guiding principle behind the Infinite Empire was endless expansion and the domination of sentient beings. A common practice of Rakatan culture is perhaps illustrative to how they functioned in the context of a galactic community. Rakatans, prior to the first contact, had frequent interspecies violence. When an individual warrior killed another, they often ate their fallen foe. A cannibalism taboo seems to have been totally absent from Rakatan culture in contrast to most societies. Once technology advanced, when presumably there was no reason in terms of dietary needs to practice cannibalism, it was conducted with relish in a kind of dinner ritual. Since they had no problem eating their own species, it is no surprise that they then expanded their diet to include other sentient beings. To keep their expansion infinite, the Rakatans sought force energy deposits, most often found on planets dense with life and force-sensitive beings. This was a resource in the same way as the suffering generated by live victims. Rakatan agents, called force hounds, detected these worlds through space via force signatures generated by planets such as those with powerful force nexuses. Without the Hounds, the Infinite Empire would not have expanded very far. Their hyperdrives could only take them from one force-rich world to another. Like all non-Rakatan citizens of the Infinite Empire, Hounds were slaves, 
They were trained from birth in the use of the dark side and were some of the earliest known users of lightsabers. These dark warriors were a match for any Jedi monk in combat. Blind loyalty to their cat and masters was of prime importance in the conditioning of a hound for service. Although this process was imperfect, and certain hounds did revolt with dire consequences. The hounds led the cosmic locust swarm of Rakatan spaceships to bleed world after world dry of force essence. They enslaved the strong and indulged in new delicacies. After a period of brutal expansion, the empire was rocked by massive slave revolts and a plague infecting only Rakata spread through their entire population, resulting in force of blindness. This condition remained permanent in the species, and since the fall of their empire, have seldom been seen away from Lehan. The Heretics Any philosophy, creed, or religion that opens the heart to the Force proves itself to be true. My legions follow the dictates of such a creed. But that is only a demonstration of the application of power, Arden. It says nothing about the rightness of our beliefs or the universality of our faith. Quote, Zendor. As we have seen, the struggle between the dark and the light side far precedes the Sith, Jedi, or even the Jedi. The particular conflict which set the astro-political stage for the ensuing epoch of sectarian force-user violence started, perhaps, with a love affair. Love, of the Eros variety, leads to passion, which is abhorred in Jedi theology. This is because of a belief that, in Force sensitives, passion leads to the dark side, which creates unimaginable suffering. Looking at the temptations of such notorious figures as Anakin Skywalker, it is hard to negate the point. The romance of Jedi Knights Arden Lin and Zendor may be the first significant evidence of passion bearing dark fruits for Force users, considering its conclusion. Zendor and Arden were masters of the early Jedi Order from around the time it relocated its headquarters to Ossus from Tython. Zendor was a noble of the Kashimur dynasty a culture with a force tradition independent of the Jedi. So too did Arden Lin learn of the force in her service as a steel hand of Palawa prior to joining the Jedi. Both had a strong force connection and an insatiable curiosity about that connection. Their relationship began as an academic one with Arden teaching Zendor of midi-chlorians, deep trance techniques, and the martial art 
Teras Kasai. This final knowledge system is of particular significance, as it was developed in order to teach non-force sensitives the martial skill required to do battle with fully trained Jedi. Before their deaths, the lovers would have many opportunities to practice the art. By the time Zendor and Arden were Jedi, the use and study of the dark side was forbidden. Zendor was not satisfied with the answers provided by studying only one aspect of the Force. He began to openly criticize the conservative doctrine of the Order. Fed up with his superiors, Zendor petitioned the Jedi Council to let him open a new academy on the planet Ledau, where he and like-minded Jedi could investigate the Force with greater latitude. Although he was denied his request, Zendor started his academy anyway. The Council refused Zendor's request on the basis of his teaching the dark side, but the Ledau Academy's curricula drew on Force traditions with diverse alignments. When the Academy began to grow at an unprecedented pace, attracting knowledge-craving Force-sensitives to Ledau rather than Ossus, its members became paranoid, fearing reprisals from the Order. Students of Zendor christened themselves the Legions of Ledau, believing that war with the Jedi was inevitable. During this period, Arden and Zendor's connection to each other and the Force strengthened. They became lovers. Their repertoire of profane Force knowledge grew to a level unrivaled by even the eminent Sith scholar, Darth Sidious. The inciting incident of the First Great Schism is unknown, but something caused Zendor to launch a preemptive assault on Ossus, hoping to end an war with his former colleagues as soon as it was started. This failed, however, and a protracted and costly galactic war between the legions and the Order followed. After many battles across diverse worlds, Zendor was slain in combat by a Jedi at Colomus. The Jedi then hunted the remaining legions, led now by Arden Lin, to Urkala. The same Jedi who slayed Zendor defeated Lin in combat. Although she survived in a force-induced state of suspended animation for thousands of years. Over 10 millennia later, during the Republic's Pious Dia era, a minor schism rocked the Jedi Order. A contingent of knights refused to withdraw from Republic space with the Order to Ossus. This group christened themselves the Order of the Terrible Glare. They continued to serve the Contuspex dynasty and its xenophobic holy war on the galaxy. In the grim darkness of the following centuries, their philosophy and practices changed into something hardly recognizable as related to the Jedi Order. Members of the terrible glare became shamans, 
drawing on the dark side of the force to manipulate life itself. They built massive pyramids to channel the force and stored their dark secrets on supercomputers contained therein. Additionally, they mastered a technique to summon eldritch extra-dimensional creatures called Rosim and commanded them like warlocks from mythology to do their bidding. These beings had variable phenotypes, with some resembling cephalopods, bats, or insects. As if their physical bearing wasn't frightening enough, they could enter a person's mind through their mouth, causing intense fear and nausea. The Order of the Terrible Glare tried unsuccessfully to destroy the Jedi during the Pious Dia Crusades. By the end of this period, the Jedi emerged as victors in the Holy War. The only survivor of the Order of the Terrible Glare was a single consciousness preserved in digital form inside one of their computers. This vengeful, vengeful spirit went on to lure many individual Jedi to their death. In 7000 BBY, Jedi Master Ajunta Paul made a breakthrough in the science of alchemy. He discovered how to shape and create life. His colleagues in the Order did not share his enthusiasm for this discovery. They suppressed his findings and labeled him as a servant of the dark side. By this time, Paul had attracted many disciples and followers, however, and they would not accept the dictates of the Jedi. Paul declared war on the Order, ushering in a period known to history as the Hundred Years' Darkness. It was a time of unspeakable violence, crimes against nature, and scientific breakthroughs. Sorzus Zinn and Karnas Mur, two like-minded individuals to Paul, collaborated to create leviathans during this time. These massive serpents were nearly indestructible and had a ravenous hunger for life essence which they absorbed from live victims via blister pods on their back. This was far from their only weapon, as they had huge jaws lined with massive razor teeth and preternatural sight located in four glowing red eyes. Leviathans were a boon to the Dark Jedi war effort, and some of these terrible creatures may yet live hibernating in far-flung corners of the galaxy, waiting for a sufficiently strong dark side master to rouse them from their millennia-stretching slumber. Zin and Mur also created a host of plagues and other biological weapons, which they used without remorse on their Jedi enemies, with the approval of Ajunta Paul. Despite having such cruel and powerful members among their ranks, the Dark Jedi lost the war. The Jedi Order had mercy on them, however, merely disarming the Dark Legions and expelling them to wild space rather than executing them. 
This was perhaps a tactical mistake, considering how galactic war history would play out. A scholar of the highest order, Sorza Zin, had learned of a world in the unnavigable Stygian caldera, rich in the dark side, where they could regroup and consolidate their power. Using her knowledge of the ancient spacer lore, she successfully navigated the exiles to Korriban. The Doomed. War is a lie. There is no defeat. There is serenity. There is no victory. There is death. Through power I am enslaved. Through the force I am doomed. Code of the Doomed. The Doomed were an isolated sect who created a syncretic force doctrine based on elements of both Jedi and early Sith philosophies. Their code is not full of violent and sinister illusions, neither is it cheerful psalm. It is an invocation of nihilism, of how the Force trapped the Jedi and their heretical enemies together on the same world in the same pointless struggle. Where once they were locked in mortal combat with one another, the Code weaved the former nemesis together in an unachievable quest. The doomed formed primarily to ensure the imprisonment of Remulus Drapa, a powerful dark Jedi who doubtless would have conquered or destroyed many inhabitants of the world Kesh. During the Hundred Years' Darkness, a Jedi strike team pursued the Dark Jedi exile Remulus Drapa and his disciples to wild space. Specifically, the interstellar hunt ended in the Kesh system. Both forces crashed on the hospitable planet, but each with many survivors. The violent animus between the Jedi Order and its apostates spread even this pre-space capable world. Unlike in the wider galactic community, these eternal enemies eventually found a way to coexist, though not without a vicious war that damaged the very geology of Kesh, separating continents and killing untold numbers. After the war, known by the indigenous Kashiri as, quote, the Great Calamity, Drapa's disciples mutinied and imprisoned him in his oubliette. With this gesture, the Dark Jedi and Jedi made peace. The resulting sect christened themselves the Doomed. They colonized the desolate and icebound polar continent containing the evil that had come to the world of Kesh 
in the form of Remulus Drapa, was their guiding principle. The former baron spent several centuries in cryostasis, but was killed shortly after being released. In their icy enclave, the doom redefined what it meant to learn about the and wield the Force. Eventually, they wrote a new code and system of ethics, and practiced their new traditions in relative isolation. Their core belief regarded the Force was that a balance of the Force must be maintained by neither foregoing nor obsessing over the light or the dark side. In other words, they reverted to a practice more in keeping with their Jedi roots, with a dash of fatalism. The doomed used powers such as lightning, divination, and telekinesis, and also relied on the Force as an industrial tool. Worship was conducted in the Temple of the Doomed, which was a new practice compared to the Sith or the Jedi. Night Sisters. This place holds much power, both of the light and dark variety. Quote, Urai Fen. Sometime around 600 BBY, the Jedi Council used an ancient form of punishment on a knight who was seduced by the dark side. The exiled Jedi Knight Alia to the planet Dathomir, hoping that in isolation from the Order and the galaxy, she would gain the perspective necessary to reform. Dathomir is a lush world with a diverse biosphere and variable climates and geology. Additionally, the Force pervades it to an unusually high degree. In some places, the Force is so strong that beings appear to glow with the Force. The planet's apex predator was a species of sentient megafauna now infamous across the galaxy. The mighty Rancor. Its native human population seems to be descended from a population of exiles, though there was once a distinct population many millennia prior to Alia's arrival. Early on in her exile, Alia befriended the indigenous Dathomiri. She taught them to master the Force, as well as the Rancors who had long predated on them. The women who learned her ways became known as the Witches of Dathomir. Alia selected only females for training, and Dathomiri society was thereafter matriarchal. Males were selected as mates by witches, but many sons produced from these couplings were fed to rancors. In time, a new society grew dominated by force-wielding female warriors. 
they traditionally enslaved the male population, despite the dictum from Alia's Book of Law, never concede to evil. Despite having what many would consider objectionable social customs, the witches of Dathomir were essentially light-side aligned. Alia based some of the Book of Law's content on the Jedi Code, but each generation of witches changed and adapted the book, and their customs became progressively distanced from Jedi orthodoxy. Like their spiritual ancestors, the Jedi, the witches used exile to punish criminals, particularly those who used magic in heretical ways. Also like the Jedi, exiling apostates in this way led to the creation of a rival order that drew exclusively on the dark side. One exile, Gethzerion, developed what would become known as shadow magics, and like Alia, wrote a text codifying her knowledge called The Book of Shadows. And it is in this book that the fearsome sect known as the Night Sisters anchored their beliefs. The elaborate rituals and spells contained in the book were necessary for most Night Sisters to tap the dark side. With these forbidden powers, they eventually came to dominate Dathomiri's society. Like the craft of prior millennia, the Night Sisters made extensive use of illusions, essentially causing terrifying hallucinations in the feeble minds of their enemies. They were also skilled in enchanting weapons and even controlling the weather. Gethzerion herself could summon force storms, an ability mastered only by the most powerful Sith Lords. The Night Sisters were theistic, believing that their powers were made possible by deities called the Winged Goddess and Fanged God. Spirit Ikor, a gaseous green substance through which they cast spells, was a gift from the Winged Goddess in exchange for performing the necessary chants, incantations, and physical movements. With these powers, they would come to dominate Dathomir. Even Emperor Palpatine feared them and quarantined the planet in 4 ABY. Some Night Sisters were killed trying to escape Dathomir, but those who made it off-world became mercenaries. They were re revived as of 25 ABY and the most recent records indicate that the Night Sisters continued for at least another 18 years. And now, a word from our sponsors. Visit beautiful Yavin at Gem Diver Station in the Yavin System, home of the historic site of the Battle of Yavin. Explore exotic ruins on Yavin 4. Enjoy the serene jungle oasis, or visit the vast and arid deserts of Yavin 13. 
visit the beautiful ice caves of Yavin 8 and see the mysterious ancient cave writings. Visit the ruins of the Death Star. Hover above the clouds of Yavin Prime, a one-stop shop to see the diversity of the galaxy. Our station audio array plays the peaceful sounds of nature to help you relax and enjoy the amenities we offer. The perfect romantic getaway. Buy your significant other a beautifully locally harvested Koraska gem to really show them that you love them. Our maximum security facility will ensure you have a safe and relaxing trip. Enjoy Gem Diver Station. Welcome aboard the Millennial Falcon. Uh, we're still in the Stygian Caldera because uh, I forgot to mention some things about the Sith species. Mostly it's about the Caldera and about nebulas. I just wanted to make this point that in science fiction, nebulas are often portrayed as like these very atmospheric clouds, like yeah. something you would see on Jupiter. But that's not really what a nebula would look like the reason we have this perception is it comes from uh astronomical imaging where they just add false color to these sw yeah, yeah. swaths of sky because yeah. it would be invisible like the the but sam space isn't real <laughs> <laughs> that's right we live on a flat earth yeah. we live on a disc it's all fake fake Images and fake news. It's a disc rotating on the back of two elephants <laughs> who are walking around on a gigantic turtle. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I digress. Um, so anyway, uh, so it's kind of like the asteroid belt problem where an actual nebula covers a huge amount of space and the gas is like really sparse. It's not very dense. Yeah. Like all the hydrogen molecules or whatever it is are super far apart. Yeah. And so it would actually be invisible to the naked eye, mostly, I believe. Yeah. Unless you get into solar nebulas, that's a whole a whole different thing, which uh, I'm sure will come up eventually. Hmm. But I just wanted to make that point. But then interestingly, it also kind of dovetails with that thing where that well actually that people always do <laughs> as it pertains to asteroid belts and even Star Wars is there's and it's funny because nobody ever brings this up but there's actually a perfectly logical way where you could have an asteroid belt like what you see in the Empire Strikes Back and that's in what's called a protoplanetary disk so early on in a in a solar system's life before planets yeah. are formed right it's just a bunch of rocks yeah orbiting, and they eventually collide and they're specifically yeah. colliding yeah. into each other like they are in empire strikes back right that doesn't happen in our asteroid field really because they're just so dispersed and wide yeah. apart but it's so wide yeah but that that was definitely happening far enough back in our in our solar system's history so yeah i just wanted to make that additional astronomy point yeah, I mean, all you'd really need is a few, couple large asteroids hit each other. They create a center of mass and start pulling in other asteroids. And Maybe. Like There's actually, this even gets more complicated because protoplanetary disks, when you, when you actually get uh, rocks that are like bigger than a volleyball, yeah. you can't really make 
good predictive models for how those then accrete into larger things. Sure. There's like this huge gap and it's kind of like the, the holy grail of um, solar physics. If you can figure out how you get from volleyball size rocks to earth size rocks, like you'd mm. win a Nobel prize in astronomy. And this is how we know that gravity isn't real. <laughs> so we know that gravity is not real. That's right. It's all about density. Yeah. It's just density. That's why things fall because they're more dense. Ah, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, I any more science uh, astronomical points? We need no. To now I'm gonna segue easily into like some really bizarre uh, occult. Oh, okay. Uh, Great uh, word associations. Well, before you do that, I wanted to say. Uh, how about that toxic femininity of the Night Sisters, eh? Oh, yeah. Enslaving men, <laughs> feeding male children yeah. to the rancors. They're like uh, the opposite of China. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Instead of throwing your infant who doesn't have the right genitals down a well, yeah. you, you feed them to a rancor. Just ripping their hearts out and giving it onto their gods. <laughs> That's right. The fanged god and the winged yeah. goddess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, another thing about the Night Sisters is it's very cool that they they learn to ride rancors. But also in all the Star Wars media I could find about rancors, they're classified as semi sentient. But then, oh really? But <laughs> then in the actual mythology and and like the the Star Wars stories about rancors, there's like one. There's one rancor at least who was actually taught to read and write and speak. Really? And I did not know this. And and rancors are herd animals, so they're and they're also matriarchal and so they're kind of like if elephants were carnivores and Do really, they also sacrifice their young to their gods? <laughs> their young no, males. No, no, they're just okay. being fed. They're they're smart enough not to have gods. They just uh that that's the thing. It's kind of like how how people say if aliens saw us, uh, they would assume that dogs were the masters. You know, r- rancors kind of. Sure. I, I think they occupy that space on on Dathomir. <laughs> okay. So, but just going back to the Sith, I forgot to talk about this, and I really wanted to. It's I call this bit the hackagram tetragrammaton. So it's. Hackagram Grouch, who was a, a famous king of the Sith. And I just wanted to talk about his name, which is interesting because it has a lot of allusions in in it mm-hmm. to various things. So first, I mean, the first part of his name is Hack. And how does he <laughs> die? He gets his, his head hacked off. So I think that's kind of funny. Does he also have uh, shallow political opinions? <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> Is he just a hack? Actually, no, he was kind of a good king okay. from, from what I, from what I recall. He was, he was like one of the more dominant kings in, in the early Sith star empire before the dark Jedi exiles came to them. Gotcha. But the other part of his name is just the, the hack, hackagram. And so that's kind of like, I'm sort of wondering if the authors are playing with ideas of things like a hexagram or yeah. a pentagram, which are both like very important symbols in various occult schools. Right. So I just thought with a lot of the names in Star Wars, there's always a lot of references that you can sort of break down and explore etymologically. And, and he's part of that. Yeah. 
Um, so were there WMDs on Ossus? Weapons of mass destruction. Mm. <laughs> Why did Zendor make the preemptive assault on Ossus that ended up turning into a very long and costly war? Yeah. Well, what's your theory on that? I, I couldn't really find much about it. It just, yeah. like on Wikipedia, and I haven't read much source material about Zendor specifically. Yeah. But he doesn't really seem like a bad guy. Like he was sort of just interested in the dark side on an intellectual level, but right. he didn't really seem to be cruel or anything like that. Yeah. He, and, but he just seemed to have gotten paranoid after he started his rogue Academy on, yeah. On uh let So I'm like, what was the reason? Did he think that there was weapons of mass destruction on Ossus? And that's why he preemptively assaulted them. Maybe the dark side was actually making him paranoid or something like that. Yeah. Could be. So that's interesting. And then he also got like like a lot of cult leaders, a bunch of sort of toxic yes men surrounded him, which is what I interpret the legions of Let Out to be because they certainly seem to be paranoid because they sort of became militaristic before the war, sort of assuming that eventually they were going to have to fight the Jedi for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't know. Do the Jedi use weapons of mass destruction? The Sith do. Yeah, I'm skeptical. They're, unless there's like more evidence to uh, prove the point. It's all guesswork. It's true. So the, the Order of the Terrible Glare, they were a really cool and sort of underdeveloped idea. They were first appeared in like the Marvel comics. So before yeah. Dark Horse. And before even the idea of what the Sith were was actually fleshed out, like, okay, because before that, the Sith was only like a, a passing mention in the opening crawl of, of Star Wars. Like, we didn't really know what that meant exactly, other than Darth Vader and Palpatine were Sith. Yeah, and so in the comics, they just they wanted an ancient enemy of the of the Jedi, and so they invented the Order of the Terrible Glare. Yeah, who are this other group of sort of Jedi apostates? Because mm-hmm. the Jedi wanted to be uh, neutral and pacifists in the right. in the holy wars of the pious Dia Crusades. Yeah, and then it it appears that perhaps they they were the ones who started the pyramid technology, which of course the Sith used to great effect. They they built pyramids, and I think Palpatine even had a pyramid somewhere i think the i think the qua ships were pyramids as well that was the other thing i was i was wondering maybe the the thoyor ships yeah certainly and yeah yeah, the thoyor we just don't know where the thoyor ships came from they could have been qua though more that uh egyptian influence (laughs) precisely (laughs) not that the sith had anything to do with that yeah and the other thing about the order of the terrible glare is this is an interesting sort of meta story about them is that they had these creatures called the Rosum and they were actually Alan Moore sort of invented the Rosum because he actually wrote a comic, a Star Wars comic called Blind Fury. Oh, did he? Back in the Hmm. 80s, which I think we're definitely going to have to review this at some point. Oh, man, totally. Man, Alan Moore is, I, I feel like, he basically invented comics. 
yeah modern comics like yeah. he changed like he changed batman he changed um uh like superhero the conception of superhero comics you know with uh, uh as as not the just watchmen yeah as not being just these purely like serialized yeah pulp kind of dumb things yeah like he he turned comics into actual literature right yeah yeah i i i would actually be incredibly curious and not just with this book but what alan moore would do with star wars if if he if he was writing which is exactly why i want to <laughs> read blind fury uh, okay alan moore my dude <laughs> you yeah. gotta write the next yeah three. you got you got <laughs> reach out to disney my man <laughs> do it like i either alan moore or like um oh geez what's his face uh, Game of Thrones guy, R, uh, Martin. Yeah, George R. Yeah. R. Martin. Yeah, he should. <laughs> one of those guys should reach out to Disney and and uh, you know p- pitch the next trilogy. <laughs> I feel like uh, Martin's sort of his the way he writes political stories is almost too realistic for Star Wars. Like I, I almost want. More. I feel like George Lucas would love that though. <laughs> he might, but George Lucas was almost doing like a a broad strokes version of politics where it gets very nitty gritty in game of thrones sure and and like all these weird double dealing back alliances yeah where star wars is more just about one double dealing guy i know but i feel like if you wanted to just make a movie with a little more layers than kind of your tip of like you know, George R. R. Martin. If you would, wanted to go a different direction, don't do the Ryan Johnson thing. <laughs> do like a, a, you know, a Martin thing or a Alan Moore thing. The other problem with Martin is he would like have to write at minimum a sextology. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, like <laughs> do just he would one. need editors who are like cutting things. <laughs> yeah. He'd like, want to write nine movies yeah. <laughs> minimum. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The the other. So the other thing I want to say about the Rosam yeah. is that in Blind Fury, there are these creatures who are just very clearly pulled out of H.P. Lovecraft's stories. Okay, like, yeah. like it's, again, that, that Cthulhu thing. They're tentacular. They're sort of beyond description, and they make people go mad when, yeah. when you contact them. And they're from uh, another galaxy or another universe even. And that's interesting because hp lovecraft has sort of had that influence both on horror and writing about the sort of dark magical ideas which is appropriate that alan moore is in this because he's sort of a famous real world occultist yeah totally i'm not sure specifically like what tradition he belongs to yeah he's in england and based on what i've read in his stuff it seems like he's Maybe he's, yeah, maybe he's an into Alistair a bunch Crowler of weird guy. Yeah. yeah, he's in a bunch of into a bunch of weird stuff for sure. Yeah, he definitely looks like a wizard these <laughs> yeah. days. If you've seen a picture of him, he looks like Gandalf or something. Yeah. Uh, I I found one little fun bit about the Night Sisters. Going back to them, one of them named Rel reminisced about Yoda being an old flirt. <laughs> I think it's a funny detail. You you know what's kind of interesting about the Night Sisters, but I think. So they were like uh, very theistic, you know. Yeah, and, very much so. Which, like, the Jedi and the Sith aren't really like they don't have a deity that they no. worship. I mean, it's. it's I'm almost, sure there's sects that do, but 
we we sort of call them and and in the galaxy they're also known as being religious but it's almost not even really fair it's more like it's more like buddhism or taoism or i would say it's it's much more close to taoism yeah like both the jedi and the sith yeah where it i guess you could call it religious but it's not necessarily theistic you know but like obviously the force is sort of pulled from taoism i think so yeah it uh it is interesting to see that and, there are and the way they interact with the forest too is also similar to how Taoists do. Like they, they don't, they don't like worship it. Right. Exactly. Right? They, don't, yeah. they don't personify it. Yeah. It's just, it's just the universe, right? Yeah. It's just the way things are. It's not something that yeah. you swear fealty to, or you have to do a bunch of rituals for or anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so just, um, taking off of that idea about uh, the witches being so theistic. It's interesting because they their backstory was written explicitly based on Wicca, which is yeah. which is a modern um, reconstructed religion. Yeah. I hasten to point out, and I don't want to insult anybody who <laughs> is a practicing <laughs> Wiccan. Sorry, all my pagans. <laughs> There are a lot of them. I would not be <laughs> terribly surprised if they were really into Star Wars. Yeah. So I, I, I understand your conception of your religion is like, like your own thing. And I'm an outsider saying this. So I might not know anything. Sure. But in my, in my reading of it, well, well, I'll say this first. So the Book of Shadows that Gesserion, uh wrote, that is uh, specifically like Wiccan, neo-pagan idea the book of shadows is like your personal magical diary that you record your spells and whatever and and also the the book of law that alia wrote that's obviously a nod to the book of the law written by alistair crowley who is like the most infamous sith (laughs) (laughs) the wickedest man in the world as he was known back in uh sort of post-Victorian England, the most famous quote of it is, love is the law, love under will. <laughs> the rest of that book is like pretty nonsensical from what I understand. Yeah. I, I haven't really read it. Uh, Alistair Crowley did like every drug all yeah. the time <laughs> and uh, wrote while under the influence, I imagine. <laughs> and he just liked to mess with people as well. Yeah. So I think a lot of his writing was like trolling the people that were uh, following him. Yeah. But the I, it is one of those things where I wonder if like <clears throat> he just needed material to give to his followers. So he just like <laughs> just made stuff up. That, I, w- I would not be surprised. <laughs> Although there's also an interesting thing I have. I think that happens with a lot of cult leaders where they start out as con men and then when they surround themselves with enough yes men, they actually start to believe their yeah. their own thing. I think this happened to, like, I I feel like L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron is, Hubbard is a guy kind of like that. I think that's exactly he believed what his happened. own BS, you know. But that was only after <laughs> sure, he initially yeah. started it as a con. But then he was like, hey, you know what? Well, he like he initially started as like a sci-fi writer, right? And did you know that he holds the Guinness Book of World Records? for the most novels ever written really yeah he's by a single author yeah by a he wrote like over a thousand or something completely insane that is crazy 
He was on a I lot of I intend to read a couple of his books, actually. <laughs> he also wrote a lot of westerns. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. He was like, in, he did a lot of speed. <laughs> I yeah. think speed was cool back then. I bet. Called yeah. it Benny's. <laughs> so another thing um, why I say Wicca was a reconstructed religion, which is interesting in terms of mythology and more sort of, I view Star Wars as like mythology of the future. Yeah. And so it was started by an anthropologist, actually. I think hmm. his name was Gerald Gardner. It might have been Howard Gardner. And so he sort of reconstructed it based on ethnographies of like extant tribal religions and stuff and also historical documents from around uh, Europe and England and stuff. And then he later went on to claim that like his grandmother taught him Wicca and, and all of this stuff. And I kind of think that's a lie because <laughs> much like these other people, it's sort of Gardner st sort of started doing one thing. And then because of the people he surrounded himself with, yeah. I think started believing these other strange things. And that's something I've noticed when I've like talked to Wiccans is you get a lot of this, like my grandmother uh, taught it to me. Really? <laughs> which is like impossible in a lot of cases <laughs> yeah, because it was like a very niche religion sort of in the thirties, just in well, England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the, most of them would have, <clears throat> most people's grandmothers in the West are like evangelical Christians. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and so I think there's, there's two things. I think some of them are liar, <laughs> liars, <laughs> but I think the other part of it is they're sort of conflating, what's called like folk magic okay with wiccan and they're sure. they're sort of saying that those are the same thing okay when they're not and what and folk magic is a thing that exists especially in like appalachia in the u.s okay and in like uh louisiana and stuff you, well i've been to like uh I know Haitians and I've been to Jamaica and stuff. There's Precisely. A, there's a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Precisely. Yeah. And and so in some populations, there's a lot of that. And Voodoo. even <laughs> even if you think about silly nursery rhymes, like step on a crack, break your, brother, your mother's back kind of thing. Yeah. Like there, there are things, ma quote unquote, magical practices like that, that sort of filter in and exist alongside religious practices without yeah. necessarily that person identifying as a Wiccan yeah. or something like that, or even like, you know, goofy alternative health practices. Sure. A lot of those are essentially just magic and, and yeah. sometimes they're even taken from ethnographic sources. Are you trying to say that my essential oils don't work? <laughs> they smell good. So they work, I guess. <laughs> no, they're healing my cancer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or stopping me from getting cancer. No, that that's pee. You got to drink your pee. That'll cure okay. your cancer. Got it. it. Here's everything. <laughs> um, I wanted to also mention epithets. So our our gal Abeloth, another example of to yeah. of toxic. That's femininity. a cool care. That's a cool character, though. Like, I want to read more about her. I yeah, she's. I think there's like seven novels or something that really that she appears. There's that many. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Hmm. Or maybe she, it's just in the culmination, yeah. like the last one of a series of seven novels. Okay. But anyway, so she's known as the beloved uh, queen of the stars yeah. and also the bringer of chaos. Yeah. And so this is like a good, a good uh, pull for, for the, from the authors in terms of it's, it's something that you see a lot 
in mythology and in ancient religions is that particular deities have like a lot of epithets, right? These different things that come after their name. Yeah. So as an example, there's Athena, the huntress goddess from Greek mythology. I have a list of like literally 40 epithets yeah. here in, in front of me. The, the protector of cities, the builder of fortresses, the virgin, the overseer yeah. of handicrafts, et cetera, et cetera. She is very like mythical. Exactly. You know? Like I, I almost kind of think of Epic of Gilgamesh territory, you know, like uh, what she what she like she what did she drink from the font of power yeah and she bathed bathed in the, in the pool, pool of knowledge, of knowledge. <laughs> like that. i was thinking straight up uh biblical <laughs> with the ones actually like yeah yeah because because there's specifically a warning from the father not to drink from <laughs> from the pool the font of power or bathe okay. in the pool of knowledge yeah it's very mythical the way but also she, she was born, you know, 100,000 BBY or whatever. So, And it's also interesting that it, it's sort of like the idea of hubris. And I've said this a few times. I think that Star Wars is like a Greek tragedy. And that's always the major downfall of the heroes in Greek tragedies is their hubris. Right, right? yeah. They're trying to be like the gods. Yeah. And this is, again, she's immortal, right? The ones were celestials, so they were sort of gods, yeah. as it were. So they could kind of handle the power, but a mortal couldn't, right? Yeah. And when she got into it, she became even worse than the sun, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the the celestials or the ones are kind of funny. I don't know who stole from who, but um, uh, on my previous podcast that I used to work on... Uh, uh, Lorehammer. <laughs> Are there celestials in Warhammer? Yeah, they're called the old ones, basically. Oh. <laughs> they're they're literally almost the same thing. Well, that's clearly yeah. a direct ripoff of H.P. Lovecraft, though, because he 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 has like a, a canon of gods called the old ones. Or the oh, old does he? Gods. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, most fictions and sci like fantasies and sci-fi really? have some kind of and just really highly developed like space opera type stories yeah they kind of always have to eventually yeah it is a, you that. almost have to have some kind of like super ancient a progenitor race yeah exactly yeah so as star wars author timothy zahn coined the term dark jedi and heir to the empire uh, he needed a label for Jedi who had fallen from the dark side and the term Sith, again, still wasn't defined. So he went with Dark huh. Jedi. I wonder why he went with Dark Jedi. Like, did he... Because in my mind, like, maybe this was fleshed out later, but, like, Sith is, like, a very particular philosophy and religion. Whereas yeah. Dark Jedi is just... They're Jedi who've just turned to the dark side. They're they're not necessarily like a Sith, or am I misreading that? No, you're you're getting it, yeah, perfectly. And is that? But is that what what Zahn thought of when he was writing about the dark Jedi? Yeah, and I think he almost wanted to maybe even use Sith, but it's just that Sith was actually used in the movie, and yeah, and there was he probably had some discussions with George Lucas as yeah. well, and he was like, "Well, I, I have this more." complex idea for what the Sith, yeah. the Sith are so go away from it <laughs> yeah and then I guess he didn't want to make 
uh, whatever that clone Jedi name that like briefly trains in Heir to the Empire. He briefly trains with Luke. Uh, Joris Kabeoth. Oh, yeah. He's got an an apostrophe in his name somewhere. And then I just wanted to mention, I think the Holy Trinity of Legends is uh, Timothy Zahn, Tom Veitch, and uh, what's his name? Kevin J. Anderson. Yeah. They sort of did the most world building. Yeah. I I, I agree. I think like those authors, everything that was written after those guys were like built off of what they wrote. Yeah, exactly. So... And yeah. they really took Star Wars, I think, out of just what had been written in the extended uni- universe so far was like mostly pulp. Yeah. Pulpy kind of stuff. And yeah. Fairly totally. self-contained. Yeah. Very pulpy. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Some of it was good, though, even though it was pulp. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying, uh, yeah, it's it, it it's like dramas in you know the eighties and nineties. You know there there was no. It's just like you watch an episode and that's kind of it. Every episode is self-contained. You know, it's very episodic in that way. So I found this guy. He's a writer. I forget which things he wrote specifically. His name was Leland Chi, but <laughs> I found a lot of references to him and even in other episodes on Wikipedia of him like. Uh, sort of settling canon issues on forums. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which I find very funny. <laughs> and I got like one day I want to do a deep dive on the way back machine into the forums. Yeah. And see like early aughts nerds yeah. arguing about Star Wars canonicity and Leland Chi coming in and like slamming them down. Which, Sorry, so who is this guy? He, he was just, just a writer for, oh, okay. for Lucasfilm. Okay, I think but he was an official writer. Yeah, he was an actual writer, but he would like settle can, uh, canon disputes <laughs> on, on the forums, That's which hilarious. I find is funny. And he said that like generally uh, we avoid Dark Jedi when we can. Dark Jedi definition refers to any Dark Jedi user, basically. Yeah, they're not. They're not really. There's not a philosophy of Dark Jedi. Right? But then he also said something that doesn't make sense, which is a Dark Jedi is anyone who practices the dark side of the Force, whether or not they were a former Jedi. And I think that just muddies the oh, waters. Yeah, and I have no idea why. He yeah, said that. I feel like with um, um, Zahn's definition of a Dark Jedi, it's more or less a fallen Jedi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, which makes sense. Like you don't have to be a Sith yeah. to be a fallen I, Jedi. I guess, but what would you call like someone who is never exposed to the ways of the Jedi and they just use the dark side of the force? Are they well, as just I, a dark side user? Or? I just call them a dark sider as I titled this episode. They're just fair enough. Dark siders. Yeah. I think that's, that's fair. Also, yeah, fair enough. Another writer, Abel G. Pena, I think perhaps also in a forum, <laughs> said that uh, Zendor was a bit of tongue-in-cheek fun because he was just a swear word that Le- Lando used to use, <laughs> and they built this this huge storyline off of a swear word. <laughs> and I thought, that's just so Star Wars that's expanded hilarious. universe. Yeah, And uh, that's about it. We're going to hyperspace. May the forks be with you.